well, I'm not sure I need to preach now. <laughs> yeah. Pressure's on, right? Um, so if you go to Bible college or seminary or something like that, uh, and you take a preaching class, one of the first things that they will teach you is that you should have an awesome introduction. An, an introduction that just pulls people into where they just can't wait to hear what you have to say. I don't have that today. <laughs> but I got your attention. <laughs> Um, so, we are just going to jump right into our passage and start to talk about it, but I, I want to um, kind of set it up where I, I'm going to kind of talk through this passage today, and we're going to jump around a little bit, uh, so I want to read it ahead of time. We'll be in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Uh, if you want to turn there, um, I will, I'll read this, and we will uh, jump right in, so... Uh, So this is a letter of uh, the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Uh, And he says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Uh, So, in in Paul's introductions to his letters, he wrote a number of letters in the New Testament. Uh, What he normally does is is introduce some of the key themes that he's going to discuss throughout the letter. So, so this obviously is the introduction to 2 Corinthians, um, and he introduces a lot of the themes that are going to be in 2 Corinthians. So, There'll be a quiz later, but if, if you can remember, when I, when I preached back in December, I preached on 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 4, 14 to 17. Um, and in that passage, uh, we discussed how like, uh, Paul was arguing that, that his suffering as an apostle of Christ doesn't negate his apostleship. So that's, that's kind of the first theme that Paul sets up here, and really it's, it's the major theme for the book of 2 Corinthians is the idea of suffering as a Christian and Paul's suffering as an apostle in particular. Uh, so, so Paul introduces and starts this letter by talking about suffering. But he discusses suffering uh, with a purpose. And here specifically, that purpose is to discuss God's comfort. So while the major theme is, is suffering, uh, 
really the, the point that Paul wants to drive home with that is that God always provides sufficient comfort in our suffering. So in, the, in this passage alone, there's, there's 10 uses in the first five verses of the word or some form of the word comfort in the original language. So, so 2 Corinthians has the, has the most words associated with comfort, and 2 Corinthians chapter 1 has the most in 2 Corinthians. So it's, it's very evident that this is what Paul is talking about is comfort and the comfort that God provides. And then the final key theme that Paul talks about here is uh, he introduces the necessity for the Corinthians to join him in, in thanking God uh, for his comfort and deliverance. And that's, that's a big part of the letter of Corinthians is uh, Paul wants the Corinthians to join him and partner with him in ministry rather than rejecting him as, as their apostle. Uh, so to reject Paul for his suffering in, in Paul's mind is to reject God because Paul's life is a picture of the gospel because Jesus suffered and died and rose again. Um, so uh, that's what he really wants the Corinthians to do. So that's, that's kind of like a, a general overview of what Paul does in these uh, first few verses of 2 Corinthians and, and kind of what he wants to do throughout the rest of the letter. Um, so, uh, all of this, though, what you'll notice in verse 3 is, is grounded in God's character and, and worshiping God for his character. So, that's, that's what we're really going to see today is that God's, God's character brings our comfort and his glory. Because everything has its foundation upon what Paul talks about in verse 3. Uh, so Paul begins the letter with, with a blessing, praising God for his character, specifically his character of mercy and of comfort. Uh, so if we're going to talk about the outline, the, the first thing we're going to discuss is uh, that comfort is grounded in God's character. So actually, Paul begins, like, the, the way he begins this with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Besides the Lord Jesus Christ part of that, it's, it's a formal way that the, the Jews used to bless God. So uh, there, there's a few places in the Old Testament where it says, blessed be the Lord, the God of uh, whatever they want to say. Um, so it's, Paul is invoking a, a formal praise of God when he says this. And he identifies God as the Lord or the Father of Jesus Christ. So I think he begins with this blessing because Paul desperately wants to communicate the identification of God and how his character applies to our ministry and how we view the ministry and how we view the gospel. So this beginning sets the tone and sets the context for the letter. Paul wants to discuss comfort, and he wants to discuss comfort in the midst of trouble and suffering but it's essential that he does so in light of the identity and the character of God. So in fact, I think what, what Paul will argue is that all comfort that we receive is, is based on and grounded in God's character. And the only response is to praise him. So he identifies him as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and as the father of mercies and God of all comfort. So as, as you see, if you read through Second uh, Corinthians, and we'll see it a little bit more clearly in verses 8 through 11, Paul, Paul suffered a lot. 
as a follower of Christ and as, as he tried to do the work of the ministry. He talks about it later in Second Corinthians, all the hardships that he goes through. There's uh, just a ton of burdens that he bore. And I think through those things, and maybe specifically with whatever situation he talks about in verses 8 through 11, Paul really starts to recognize and identify the character of God in his mercy and his comfort. So he praises him for that. So in the Bible, consistently presents God as a merciful and compassionate God. And I, I think if we are to understand the the rest of second corinthians and if we're to understand a a theology of suffering and a theology of comfort uh, we we really need to understand this this aspect of god's character and that's why paul goes there so what i what i want to do is, is go through some passages that throughout throughout scripture that really reveal how god is consistently presented as being merciful and comforting and caring uh, for his people and his followers. Uh, so the first place I want to go, and this will be the only one I ask you to turn to, is Exodus chapter 34. I, I think this is essential because uh, Paul actually references Exodus 34 later in chapter 3. So it's, it, it could be that this passage is on Paul's mind as he writes this. Uh, so in Exodus 34, so this is uh, in, in chapter 32 of Exodus, that's when Israel committed the sin with the golden calf. So Moses was up on the mountain, and uh, the people got impatient and decided to make an idol. Aaron threw some gold into the fire. Or, uh, that's what he said he did, that he just threw gold in the fire, and a calf came out. Um, really, he molded it, and, and Israel worshipped it. So that breaks the first commandment, to worship the Lord your God, or love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Um, So, that's obviously a a big deal. Israel, God's people, uh, abandoned him very quickly after he redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. So, God does punish them, but but relents a lot of his punishment in in his mercy because of the the prayer and intercession of, of Moses. So, but then, like, there's, there's this interesting story where, um, Moses is is talking with God, and God eventually renews the covenant with Israel. But Moses asks God to uh, show Himself to him. So so God kind of does that, and and reveals His name and who He is and His character to Moses. So I want to read from chapter thirty three, actually verse seventeen through chapter thirty four, verse nine. I know it's lengthy, but it's um, it really shows how God. Uh, situates himself in the history of Israel and the history of his followers. So beginning in chapter 33, verse 17 of Exodus, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he, as God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So, so God is about to reveal himself to Moses in a way that he's never, never revealed himself to anybody before. It goes on. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So when God reveals his name to Moses, the, the first thing he says is that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is, that is how our God wants to be identified and defined, and that is what his character is. And we, we must know that if we are going to do the rest of what Paul encourages us to do in this passage, and if we are truly going to be comforted by him, we must first know and dwell on his character. There are just a few more places in Scripture where it talks about this. Uh, Lamentations 3.22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. In 2 Samuel, when, when uh, David is presented with the choice of being punished by God or being punished by man, he says, it says, Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. God's mercy is great. Psalm 46.1 and, and tons of other psalms that have statements like this says, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. And that's, that's what God's mercy is, is his goodness and care for those in trouble or distress. And then in Jesus' own life, um, in Mark 6.34, when, uh, right before the feeding of the 5,000, when all the people come to him, uh, Jesus has compassion on them and teaches them. In other places, Jesus has compassion on people and heals them. Throughout his ministry as compassion and mercy on people. And then finally, uh, we'll end with Hebrews 4.16, where it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's, that's our God, and that's how he is defined in every book of Scripture, is that he is merciful and gracious, and that he helps those who are in need. And that's what Paul came to recognize. 
So this, this permeates all of Scripture. It's how God relates to people who live in a sinful and messed up world as he is merciful and compassionate toward them. <clears throat> so Paul learned to live in need of God's mercy and comfort, and he begins this letter with praising God for that aspect of his identity and his character. So it's essential that for the Corinthians to, to understand what it means for him to suffer as an apostle and for them to suffer as believers in Jesus Christ, that they understand God's character as merciful and gracious and comforting. So Paul begins, and, and he really ends this passage uh, with worship of God because of his character. And I, I think like if, if we're to bring this home to us today, um, we likely lack the perspective of Paul in the midst of his suffering because we lack an understanding or a comprehension of the true character of God. We, we don't dwell on God enough. We don't dwell on his character and who he is enough. So you'll notice in this passage that Paul focuses very, very little on himself. He considers himself just an agent or a tool in the hands of God to comfort other people. God is always the one who comforts. So Paul's mind is, is always God-centered. So we need to return to, to a, a, a true and pure theology of, of God and who he is and a focus on, on his nature if we want to be truly comforted by him in times of need. So the answer to our struggles is most certainly not to think more positively about ourselves, but to think more constantly about the character of God. So not to uh, read too much, but, but this is just so good, and it's so important for how we need to think about God. The, the Westminster Confession of Faith um, was a document, I think it was written in the 18th century, um, but they, they define who, who God is, or um, what his character is, and it's um, we we don't think about this God this way anymore. I don't think they they say uh, there is but one only living and true God who is infinite and in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek them, with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his, glory, his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them." He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is 
infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so that as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever, worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. That's that's the character of our God and the, the holiness and greatness of him. And And in all of that and constantly through it is that God is loving and gracious and merciful and comforting to those who need it. So we are are most comforted in God when we recognize his character and give him the praise for it. So as Paul does, we also must start with praise because it's, as as John Piper talks about, it's in glorifying God that we are most satisfied, that that we have the most joy. So, So if we lack joy or we feel like we are struggling or suffering in life, maybe we need to spend a little bit more time dwelling on the character of our great and awesome God. That that's what Paul does, and I think that's that's what pushes him through all of the sufferings that he endured. So we must understand the character of our God. Paul begins there because there is no comfort from a God you don't know, really and truly. So all the comfort we need and receive is ultimately from him. And Paul shows this in verse 4. So uh, turning back to Second Corinthians... Verse 4, he kind of sets the theme for what he talks about in uh, all the way through verse 7. He says, uh, God, who who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So what we see is that Paul received comfort directly from God, but comfort comes from God through his people. So so Paul doesn't actually comfort anybody. He's just the, the agent by which God's comfort flows to the Corinthians to comfort and to bless them. So so Paul shows how God's comfort overflows through other people. So when Paul suffers, God comforts him so that Paul can comfort others. And Paul is never the subject of that comforting. It is always God. So while Paul in this particular verse is speaking specifically of how God uses him to comfort the Corinthian church, I think there's a a principle of of mutuality, of of giving and receiving uh, that that he sets up here. So, So later in verse 11, Paul will plead with the Corinthians to help in prayer. So the, the church mutually helps and comforts one another. People are the means that God uses to bring comfort to other people in the church. So later in the letter, uh, Paul will depict how we mutually comfort one another with God's comfort. So, um, so Paul kind of has this ongoing dialogue with the Corinthians about how he was waiting for Titus to come to visit him while he was uh, in Asia, um, and he was pretty anxious about this. So he finally gets to discussing it, in, in verse 7, I think this is where Paul really, uh, you see the application of this idea of mutuality, of, of the church being dependent upon one another. Uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 7, uh, I'll just uh, read through verses 5 to 7 and verse 13. 
where Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at, at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Therefore, in verse 13, we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So, God comforts Paul. Through Paul, God comforts the Corinthians. Through the Corinthians, God comforts Titus, who comforts Paul and causes him to rejoice. So, I think I want to step back a little bit and, and talk somewhat, I guess, theologically about the, the nature of the church that, that Paul presents here. Um, it's, it's oxymoronic for a Christian to not be committed to and involved in a local church. Because it is, it is through the people in the church that God works in your life. It is, it is through those relationships. The, the church is a, a community of people who are mutually dependent on one another because the, the Lord works through each one of us. So I think this sense of mutuality applies in different, many different areas, but the, the passage before us is dealing specifically with comfort. So through God's comfort, Paul is able to comfort those who are in any affliction. This applies to spiritual, emotional, or physical troubles, afflictions, and sufferings. So we must be relationally connected with one another so that God may allow us and through us comfort one another. So the question is, is are you committed to the local church? Are you committed to your other believers, your, your brothers and sisters in Christ here. And I don't think Paul is talking about just being committed to coming and hearing a sermon every Sunday. It's a, the, the church is it's a commitment to people. It's a commitment to relationships. If we don't have those relationships, then there's, there's no way for God to comfort us through those relationships. There's no way for us to comfort others through those relationships. So are you committed to the people in the local church? God will use you to comfort them, and he will use them to comfort you in your time of need. And he'll especially do so when and if we suffer for the sake of Christ. As this passage progresses, Paul gets increasingly more specific in the comfort he receives from Christ. And that, that's where he turns to, is, is the sufferings of Christ in verse 5, where he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So Paul connects the sharing of Christ's sufferings with, the cut, with sharing abundantly in comfort from the Father through Christ. So the, the question obviously arises is, what, do, what does it mean to share or partner in the sufferings of Christ? So certainly Paul does not mean that he somehow participates in the, the work of atonement that Jesus accomplished. So, so Jesus suffered 
at the hands of the Romans, was beaten brutally and died, crucified, and rose again, conquering death and sin. And, and, and in that death, he bore God's wrath for all who believe. Paul does not participate in that suffering or in what that accomplishes. That is, that is a final and completed act where all those who believe in the work of Christ stand redeemed because he accomplished that on that day when he died. But I think what it does mean is that Jesus fully associates himself with the church. So Paul, in other places in the Corinthian correspondence, talks about how the the church is the body of Christ. So the sufferings are the sufferings of Christ in that the church is his body, and when they suffer, as when Paul suffers, it depicts the gospel. Because that's, that's what Jesus did was suffer and conquer that suffering. So it shows how God has worked in the world to save it. And this salvation, which Paul refers to in verse 6, as he says that the Corinthians share in comfort and salvation when Paul is afflicted, is, is part of the comfort we receive. Um, so in describing what this means to uh, share in the sufferings of Christ and um, really the, the encouragement in that, and that's why like, this passage really isn't just about suffering or, or comfort. It's, it's about the hope that we have in Christ. Um, this New Testament scholar named Victor Paul Furness shows how, how Christ's sufferings are, are ultimately, in the New Testament, connected to his overcoming of those sufferings. So, so consistently throughout Scripture, when it, when it talks about Jesus' suffering, it consistently connects it to his resurrection and his glorification. Um, so he says that there's uh, this general tradition that, that Christ suffers, Christ overcomes that suffering, and then Christians partner in that suffering, and the cycle begins again in that they also overcome that suffering through the comfort of God and their ultimate resurrection. Um, so we kind of see this pattern in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, uh, where Paul discusses it. So Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So when, when the New Testament talks about Christ suffering and when the New Testament talks about believers suffering, they're always forward-looking to the hope that we have in Christ. They always look forward to the hope of resurrection and glorification that we have in Christ. Because that's what Christ's suffering and his death accomplished. Christ suffered and died and he overcame death and rose again from the dead and ultimately received glorification. And in the New Testament, all the time it talks about how we look forward to this hope that we have of deliverance, and this hope of resurrection, and this hope of glory and glorification. 
So Jesus suffered and died and rose again in power and was ultimately glorified. And Paul, especially as an apostle, considered himself a picture of this. He suffered, he overcame those trials through the comfort of God, through Christ, and based on the comfort he has received from God, has the hope of glory. So, when I talked about 2 Corinthians 2 last time, I talked about how how Paul's life was this picture of the gospel. And I think that's that's what the New Testament builds for, for all of Christian suffering throughout Scripture, is that we are pictures of the gospel. Is that, that's what we need to proclaim, is that, that Jesus died for the sins of the world and overcame those in raising from the dead, so that all who believe in him also die to sin and overcome sin and overcome death and will be raised. So, so when we suffer as believers and we are comforted by, by God through the church, it's a picture of the gospel. Suffering is, is not an indication of, of God's punishment on us. It's an indication of us identifying with Christ. And, and that's what we want to proclaim to the world. Is, is that our gospel is a gospel not of, of our self-righteousness and our ability to overcome suffering in and of ourselves. The, the gospel is a message of surrender to Christ and his power to work through you and ultimate reliance on him. And that's where Paul goes at the end of this passage in verses 8 through 11. So the Corinthians, Paul is arguing, enter into this tradition and this cycle. They too, as followers of Jesus, will experience sufferings of Christ as they live out the gospel. They will experience and share in the sufferings of Christ since they're followers of Christ. And so will we. But Paul is confident that God, through Christ, will comfort them as well. He will overcome their sufferings just like he does his. And I think that's the foundation for Paul's hope that he talks about in verse 7. They will partner with Paul in the sufferings of Christ, but that means they will also partner with him in the comfort that only God can provide. So what do we do with the idea of the church sharing or partnering in the sufferings of Christ? What about how Paul implicitly urges the Corinthians to patiently endure sufferings? I think there's two things that we need to point out as as we consider sufferings. Outside of the two, the first one I want to point out is that all people are not called to suffer the way that Paul did. The Corinthians shared in the sufferings of Christ, but they didn't suffer like Paul. Um, So this is not a masochistic type of thing. Um, I think that's the right word. Um, so, but, but two things I want to point out in regard to suffering. First, God is sovereign over all things, including our suffering. So Scott Hafeman, a, a New Testament scholar and Second Corinthians scholar, says there is no comfort in suffering if God is not over it. God is not sovereign over suffering. There, there isn't any comfort in that. But we do know that God is sovereign over it. And Hafeman goes on, For Paul, God is the one who leads Paul into suffering, sustains him in its midst, and delivers him from it, all to the glory of God himself and for the eternal good of his people. So, we must, we must know that God is sovereign and has a, a reason and a purpose for our suffering. Um, 
I'm going to reference this a little bit later too, but I, I was listening to a Matt Chandler sermon, um, and uh, man, I just lost my train of thought. But uh, <laughs> he he was talking about how uh, man, I completely lost it. If it comes back to me, I'll say it. <laughs> it's not in my notes. <laughs> um, so, secondly, we must trust God in His purposes. Um, so in this passage, there's, there's two ways in which God works through uh, suffering are revealed. Um, so, so the first one, he, he comforts us and provides a way for us to persevere through suffering. Um, so secondly, and that's what Paul's going to go to in verses 8 through 11, um, is he actually delivers us from suffering so that our faith is increased and, and others are encouraged. So, so there may be times in our life where, where we're suffering and, and we're, just, we're just in it and we're, we're praying and seeking deliverance from it for, for whatever it is, but, but it stays. It doesn't just go away. We, do, we don't get delivered from it. And the point that I think Paul makes in verses 3 through 7 of this passage is that God gives you the comfort to help you endure through that suffering. His comfort matches the intensity of your suffering. But there may also be times where you pray for deliverance and and God in his great power and not by any power of your own delivers you from it to increase your faith and your trust and your reliance on him, which is where Paul goes next, um, which brings us to the, the, the final point of the sermon that God's past and present provision establishes a future hope uh, in verses 8 through 11. So in this section, Paul talks about um, how he, he has this, um, he had this intense affliction or trouble or suffering that happened in Asia. He doesn't really describe what it is, scholars debate, but it's kind of pointless because Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't go there. That The issue isn't what it was. The issue is what he experienced in it. But it's likely that um, the, uh, the Corinthians actually knew of this experience, but just didn't know or were unaware of the emotional and spiritual and maybe even physical magnitude of what it was he went through. So Paul wants to make them aware of, of this intense, intense burden and how God delivered him from it. So whatever happened to him caused him to, to actually and literally despair of living. So in fact, it, it sounds like Paul thought that God had committed him to death. He said we, we felt like we had the sentence of death. So it could be that this experience is likely one of the reasons that the Corinthians started to lose faith in Paul as their apostle. So they thought that surely a person who goes through this type of suffering and surely a person who looks like he's being condemned by God in his suffering, surely he's not somebody we should follow. And that's, that brings it back to, or Paul argues, no, my, my suffering depicts the gospel because it, it depicts God's deliverance in suffering. So this is why a, a health and wealth gospel, really, that the Corinthians kind of fell into is so dangerous, where, where if, you, if you just have enough faith in Jesus, everything will go well in your life. That most certainly is, is not the case. It was dangerous then and is dangerous today. God uses suffering for his glory and our good and our comfort. 
So God used this specific experience to destroy Paul's self-confidence and build up his trust in God. Paul says at the end of verse 9 that it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul was at the point of death, whatever that looked like in his life, and God delivered him from it in, in some way. So he delivered Paul, and Paul's trust is fully in God to deliver him again, he talks about. So he has set his hope solely upon God to deliver him. And this passage shows that sometimes God allows us to suffer in order to get rid of our self-reliance, our self-confidence, and to rely solely on him as our Savior and our Comforter. And isn't that really the message of the gospel? Like, to, to believe in Jesus Christ for, for salvation is saying, I can't save myself, you have to do it for me. And, and, it, and it's not just for our salvation so we can go to heaven when we die. It's every day in our life we need to, to submit ourselves in reliance on Christ to sustain us. So we must rely on God because he is the God who raises the dead. So Paul is certainly referring to his situation and God's deliverance from it, but I think he's clearly drawing a connection to the resurrection of Christ and to our future resurrection and our future hope. So Jesus suffered and died, but God overcame death by raising him from the dead and glorifying him. Paul suffered. He uh, was at the point of death, but God delivered him from that death. And not only that, Paul has the hope that God will deliver him from death through resurrection. So Paul's past and his presence, present deliverance in suffering establishes this hope of this final resurrection and confidence that God can and will redeem and save. So that's what this passage and suffering and comfort in our own lives should do. It establishes our confidence in the sovereignty of God over suffering, provides us encouragement that he will provide in the present, and gives us hope of resurrection into his fully realized kingdom. So for the sake of applying this packet passage, I think it's really important that we understand what this future hope is. So again, to step back and look at it somewhat theologically, um, there's a study in theology called eschatology. Eschatology is, is the study of last things, the study of, of the end times. It's, it's what's going to happen in the end. And um, if you read the New Testament, everything is focused on this, this hope that we have. Everything is forward-looking. All of our hope, all of our perseverance, everything looks forward to the hope that we have in Christ. And there, there's all kinds of confusion about eschatology, and we're, we're not going to talk about that, but the, the basic overall thing, there's, there's, there's two errors, two broad errors that I think are made. Um, so uh, one of them, the, the first error, is what we, what we can call an under-realized eschatology. So I'll, I'll explain what that means. So uh, we can assume that there's a couple different variations of this. We can assume that everything in this world is, is pointless because someday God is going to destroy everything and we are just going to be in heaven with him, right? So, um, so that's 
under-realized because it, it views God's future kingdom as, as completely and utterly future. And it, it kind of takes away from the way that God is presently working. So this perspective thinks uh, that God's kingdom is fully future, and the result is that the gospel just becomes this, this coping mechanism where we just have to make it through this world so we can get to that world. So it's under-realized because the kingdom of God that Nathan's been talking about in his sermon series, especially on Mark, is actually established at the resurrection of Christ. So it's, it's inaugurated at that time. So it says that none of God's kingdom and redemptive purposes have been inaugurated. We have to avoid that. Because God has acted in this world. The kingdom was inaugurated at the death and resurrection of Christ. And death is an enemy that still must be finally and completely defeated. So where this thinking goes awry is that sin has devastating effects on us. We have trials and sufferings and afflictions. And we, we must not just accept those things as just the way it is. God can and does work today because he already has begun and inaugurated his kingdom. He does comfort us now in the here and now. Because we have a hope of that future kingdom. And his kingdom has begun. His kingdom has been inaugurated and he can and will use all things for his purposes. The second error is an over-realized eschatology. So this is probably what the Corinthians struggled with. So this expects suffering to be completely removed from the life of believers. So, so God has brought his kingdom on earth. So, so if we believe in him, then I am in his kingdom and everything should be great for me. So I just need to have enough faith. And this is where the health and wealth gospel uh, goes wrong. We learn in 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, some of the Corinthians believe that the resurrection had already happened. This is over-realized. They're, they're bringing too much of what will be future into the present. The other view pushes too much of what is in the present all into the future. So the result of this over-realized eschatology um, is some form of the health and wealth gospel that expects God to just get rid of all suffering and despair right now. And really what, what we live in is it in an overlap of the ages, what, what theologians call the, the already but not yet. The kingdom is, is already present and revealed, but it's not fully there yet. God has acted in Christ and continues to work in and through us. So because of this, we can be confident that God is sovereign and working in our suffering today. But we also know that we have this hope of future and final and complete redemption. We have the hope of a fully realized kingdom where God will defeat the last enemy, which is death, as Paul identifies it in 1 Corinthians. Despair will be gone. Suffering will be eliminated. Struggle and toil will be removed. We will live and work and worship free of sin and its devastating effects. So, this is where the Matt Chandler sermon comes in. I think it applies perfectly to this passage. 
So in this final hope, all things that we struggle with, all, all sinful things, all things that are, are burdens to us, all things that are um, uh, impacted by the sinful nature of our world, we will be, we will be redeemed from. So, so if we struggle with particular sins and it's just a, a constant battle in our life, God will free us from that. If, if we struggle with depression and the devastating effects of that, God frees from that. We, we have that hope to look forward to. But we also know, because the kingdom has been inaugurated, that he comforts us here and now in that. But we have a future hope of, of being fully set free from that. If you struggle with guilt of previous sins, you'll be free from that guilt. In God's fully realized kingdom, he will remove all anxiety and worry. How much time we spend worrying and being anxious about our life? Can you, can you imagine being, being free from that? God offers us comfort right now in that anxiety. And we have this hope of future full and final and complete redemption from that anxiety and worry. So this is our hope. This is what God will accomplish. And God has proven himself able to accomplish it in the resurrection of Jesus and his deliverance of believers through the ages that has happened, beginning with Paul and the rest of the apostles. So God is faithful and trustworthy and sovereign. He is merciful and he's a comforter and he's gracious. And these truths about our God, about who our God is, and the hope he gives us of full and final redemption should give us great comfort. So as Paul learned, we must also learn not to rely on ourselves. We can't rely on ourselves in the midst of sin or in suffering. We are, but that's, that's really where we are programmed to go. But we, we must go to the cross. We must go to Christ. And we must remember who God is and what God has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. And finally, as Paul ends this passage and as he began this passage, we must praise and give thanks to God for who he is in a way that he has, does, and he will work in comforting us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your grace. Um, we thank you for your comfort. We thank you for your redemption and the hope of final redemption. Um, and God, may we learn to trust you more and more in that. In Jesus' name, amen.